HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc. Hey there, and welcome to the FeedFeed podcast. I'm Julie Resnick, co-founder of The Actual FeedFeed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. I will be your host for season three of the FeedFeed podcast, a special series called What's on Your Table. Each episode, I will be taking a look at a specific country, region, or people and talking to a special guest about the food, recipes, ingredients, and flavors that make up the dishes that are always on their table. Today, we're spotlighting Chinese Americans, and I'm so excited to be joined by Winston Shu. A New York City chef and entrepreneur, Winston started his culinary journey long before he knew he wanted it to be his career. A Brooklyn native, Winston spent countless summers helping his family's takeout operation in the UK. He obtained a degree in finance and mathematics and spent several years working as an actuary at a top risk consulting firm before realizing his true calling in the culinary arts. In 2012, he enrolled in culinary school at the Institute of Culinary Education and then worked at some of New York City's top restaurants, including Bethany and WD-50. He then went on to open up and partner on Bonbite NYC a New York City-based catering company that focused on using local sustainable food producers, as well as opening the Little Tong Noodle Shop. Today, he continues to follow his passion to cook, learn, and teach, while also acting as the co-founder and chief strategy officer. While also acting as the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Rethink NYC, a nonprofit on a mission to create a sustainable and equitable food system. Welcome to the Feed Feed Podcast, Winston. Thank you, Julie. Thank, thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's great to, to chat with you. Um, 
All right, so let's jump right in. Um, I want to start with your childhood. I know that you grew up in Brooklyn. I'd love to hear what are some of your earliest food memories? Oh, man, uh, so many. I, I mean, growing up in Brooklyn, I we were living in Flatbush, so, you know, it was not a lot of predominantly Asian food. Um, so, you know, the typical day for me or week for me was we would have, you know, um, Chinese food, home cooked, um, you know, once or twice a week, um, Mexican food, pizza, Italian food. Uh, so it was a melting pot of all different types of cultures and food, um, which I think gave me somewhat of a unique palate today. Oh, that sounds great. Um, and so did your parents cook a lot at home and were you active in the kitchen as a child? Yes, um, my mom actually, um, she cooked a lot. My dad owned restaurants and he, he wasn't nearly as home a lot, but, you know, we always cooked um, once or twice a week. And it was some, some, some of the things that, you know, we did just to, you know, preserve tradition or even just kind of pass it along. And I just remember being in the kitchen with my mom, um, helping as far as, as I was, you know, five or six years old. And what are some of the dishes that your mom would make? Did she have kind of like a, a favorite recipe that you would ask her to make time and again? We often joke, my mom actually, um, she, she's very simple in terms of cooking. Um, and, you know, growing up, you know, we, we always joked that it didn't have enough flavor. But, you know, looking back, it actually allowed me to appreciate um, food in a different way in more of its simplistic forms. So my favorite thing that she does um, is this chow and mushi dish, which is like an egg custard that's steamed. And, um, you know, she's been doing it all over the years. So, you know, when I go home, it's one of those things that I request. And we, she did a lot of um, soups and, you know, very traditional Chinese soups that we had, um, you know, on a weekly basis. That's great. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about, you know, you went to college, you got a degree in math and finance, and you were working as an actuary. What was that like? And then what inspired you to change paths and go to culinary school? You know, I think for, for us, uh, for myself as a first generation um, American, you know, my mom's from England, my, my, my dad is from China. Um, they want me to focus on having an education and security. And that really put me in the system to um, go get a college degree, um, not really knowing what I want to do. And I, you know, it's funny because I kind of fell into my profession um, just based on the conversation that I had with a high school um, math teacher. She always said, if you're going to do math, um, don't be a teacher, be an actuary. They, they at least make money. So <laughs> when I went to college, I kind of tried the accounting thing for two months and found like it, found that it wasn't ideal for me. Um, but mathematics was still something that I was really um, interested in. So I pursued the actuarial route. And it took about 10 years to really make me figure out that, you know, I liked it, but not enough um, for me to kind of feed the soul. And I always wanted to work with people in community and, you know, ever growing, ever since growing up, um, you know, I found myself, you know, doing a lot of community work. So mm -hmm. I think food was sort of the outlet. I wasn't sure um, what I wanted to do in food, but I knew that, you know, if I like eating food and I think for most um, cooks, it's sort of, that's sort of the first requirement. And the second thing was that I found that um, working in the food scene put me around others um, that truly felt the same way. And, you know, I think that was the vessel. And so you said that when you were growing up, your dad um, owned restaurants. What kind of restaurants did he own? 
my dad owned uh, Chinese takeout restaurants and, you know, more of the traditional Canton Chinese takeout restaurants. He started up in Connecticut and he made his way back down to New York City eventually after I was born. And he actually owned a restaurant called the Sichuan Palace, uh, focusing on traditional Sichuan cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, it was located on 42nd Street by the United Nations. Oh, cool. So did you spend a lot of time there as a kid? I spent uh, enough time eating. I didn't really work in the, uh, in this restaurant. I, I just think it was you know, much more of an upscale restaurant. And for, I guess, a young kid to kind of be putzing around, it wasn't ideal for them. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, I guess, you know, obviously food was central to your upbringing. Your dad owned this restaurant. Um, you guys cooked as a family a lot together. Why did you decide to to leave your job as an actuary and go to culinary school? I think it was a quarter life crisis. Uh, I was 25, and I remember working countless hours, um, over like 100, 100 something hours every week, and we we're helping build a, a a small a small department within a firm that eventually got really big. And just looking back, I just felt like something was always missing. Um, I remember, you know, the moment I graduated college, I was like, okay, now what? What do I do? You know, you get a nine to five job. You know, what? I felt like there was a greater purpose, and you know, you know, I'm fortunate that. I found cooking and, you know, it allowed me to achieve and work on projects that really connected with me. Um, you know, growing up, not having much, I, I always, one thing that I knew that I always had was food and, and food was the outlet that really allowed me to escape um, my surrounding and really focus on, on just being happy, being around people. And I think the conversations that I, you know, I've shared with, you know, my friends and their families over the years have always been around food. So I felt like, you know, it was sort of, um, ground, you know, it was one of the things that really grounded me. Love that. And so what did you do when you got out of culinary school? When I got out of culinary school, um, I worked um, at, as a stagiaire at um, WD-50 by Wally Dufresne. And mm-hmm. I spent about six months there. Um, I, after that, I kind of um, dabbled in terms of just doing different culinary projects, really exploring. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to jump back into into a restaurant and, you know, s- spend the seven, eight years there. Not because I didn't want to, but I felt like, you know, s- I kind of joined the game a little bit later in my career. And I want yep. to I want to learn. So I, there was a thirst for hunger. So I want to work on as many projects and really develop at least a perspective. And then from there, I would, you know, at least be able to choose where I would at least spend my next five to six years, whether it's dedicated to a restaurant or a restaurant group or, you know, a particular part in the industry. Um, so that's really what happened. And, you know, what actually, what actually came out of it was, you know, um, working on one project after another, meeting different people. Um, you know, the past seven years has really been developing that culinary voice, um, but more importantly, working on myself um, as, as, as a person as a chef and really understanding where I want to be, um, what impact that would I like to have in terms of um, just being an, a, a, a chef in this community and, you know, what can we do for our industry? Yeah, and I um, I heard another podcast that you were on where you talked a little bit about your grandmother and how she inspired you because she never wasted anything in the kitchen. Um, you know, Bon Bite, um, the catering company that you had that focused on sustainable food and producers. Um, tell us how like using local ingredients and, um, you know, with a focus on sustainability became a focus of yours. 
I think from the very beginning, um, you know, I was always, always just raised, um, brought up to not waste food. I think just coming from, you know, you know, relatives that, you know, have dealt with hunger and dealt with um, just having limited resources. The, the importance of utilizing everything and eating everything was very important. Um, so it just kind of became an ethos, but also something that I practiced throughout outside of even being a, a chef. And it was important to me because I, I understood how slim, um, you know, margins were in terms of being a business owner and, and just working in a restaurant and, you know, kind of being one of those businesses where we bootstrapped and, you know, put our savings on to, to really um, try to start something. It was important for us to have that viability. So, you know, all things considered, um, you know, that's really what pushed us to say, okay, let's be savvy. Let's make sure that, you know, we're not wasteful, but at the same time, be smart business owners so that we can make sure that we can continue to be successful. Um, and for us, as we started, be, you know, running our business, we just knew that we had to hire people and we wanted to take care of people. And I think there's this stigma um, that we have in the industry is that, you know, it's, it's very hard to survive. And, you know, so things that we practiced at Bombay was to make sure that anything that we saved that we could reinvest for our own employees, whether it's health insurance or giving them bonus or salary, things that we could just, um, you know, kind of bootstrap and just reinvest internally so that we can continue to be successful as we grow. Yeah, that's great. I remember reading, um, I think it was like a Father's Day article about Bombite and the way that you, you know, treat your employees and, you know, exactly that, like reinvest back in the company, reinvest back in them, and also, um, you know, paid family leave and, and all of that, um, you know, was, you know, kind of top of mind in terms of your management style, which is, um, you know, very commendable. So um, it's great to hear. So I'm I'm curious, um, you know, and actually, is Bombite like? It, are you still in operation right now, or due to the pandemic, are you kind of taking a pause on that business? So luckily, um, you know, the past two years, as we we're thinking about sustainability and, and the future of our company, we actually invested in turning our space. Um, so we have about six thousand square foot kitchen space in the Brooklyn Navy Yard to turn it into incubation. Uh, the choice in terms of doing that was that we knew that based on our business and what the catering industry was, that we had seasonality. And the toughest part was to keep to keep staff on consistently, um, which was important for us because the quality of food, the quality of service that we're able to provide. Um, most catering companies don't have the leverage of, you know, hiring full time, but they hire seasonally. So we convert our, our, our space to incubate small businesses to sort of um, create a mixed um, business that allowed us to bring in some revenue that will help sustain us um, to, to do something more sustainably, which is, you know, even keeping um, employee retention, but looking at different programs, which we can um, develop. So through those programs is actually um, funny enough where Rethink Food came out of, it, it sort of birthed through our kitchen um, three years ago when we had the opportunity to, you know, partner up and, and help support another um, local small business as an incubation space, but also partake in, in the culture and kind of refine and refine and also develop the voice as to what they are today. That's great. Um, so Rethink NYC, yeah, your nonprofit has been in the news quite a bit since the pandemic. Um, it seems like you've been 
very busy. Talk to us about some of the collaborations that you have. Um, I know you team up a lot with 11 Madison Park. Um, what have you been doing to support restaurants, to support frontline workers during the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a crazy ride, you know, just to even answer that question of like, you know, where are we at? I mean, the restaurant industry and the catering industry for sure is, is you know, taking taking a big hit. And for yeah. most caterings, we're not even looking about doing any events for the next probably year. Um, but in terms of rethink, most of the stuff that we've done during COVID was actually an opportunity for us to actually pivot um, everything that we've done. Um, so the past six months, we actually took on utilizing ex existing infrastructure from restaurants to use them as soup kitchens or community kitchens to provide meals for New Yorkers in need. And previously, we were you know doing something similar, which was you know salvaging food and creating um, meals for soup kitchens. But given the fact that restaurants um, closed down and um, supermarkets and um, farms sort of um, bottlenecked in terms of in terms of supply chain, it really yep. changed the way um, Rethink was able to have any type of viability because the restaurants were closed. We weren't salvaging any food that we could convert. So we had to look at a model that um, adjusted with the times. And I think this is a unique opportunity to address, you know, what's what you know, we know in our industry doesn't work, which is, you know, the amount of food that um, we waste um, that that's being thrown away. But, you know, if we're going to rebuild our industry from the ground up, how can we address these issues at this time to make sure that, you know, as businesses are looking at reentering into in, into the world and opening their restaurants and businesses uh, for customers? How do they take more uh, a more proactive approach to address you know these questions of food access? Um, how can they be more savvy in terms of menu construction, um, or you know how do we develop a program where they can cook their excess um, so that you know th those meals can be donated through a nonprofit? Yeah, that's great. So, are you taking that approach and helping to roll it out in restaurants across the country, or are you focusing mostly on New York? We've done some stuff in um, pilot programs like um, in San Francisco with Dominique Crenn and Petit Crenn. And, you know, there's um, some activations in Chicago. Um, you know, there's one in Nashville with Sean Brock. So we have little satellite programs just to test it out. Um, but, you know, we, most importantly, the chefs there are really ambassadors for um, what they want to see change um, in terms of the industry, um, but also support their local communities at this point in time. And so can you talk a little bit about what you've been working on with 11 Madison Park? Sure. Um, you know, Daniel's a co-founder and um, with 11 Madison Park, um, in the moment they closed, um, Daniel, had Daniel and the team had reached out to us in terms of employing a model um, for us to kind of take over their kitchen. So they act as a commissary kitchen where they're producing meals um, for, the, for the temporary being making sure that, you know, we can salvage as many employees. Um, so that partnership was was in, was in partnership with Amex. And since um, then, we've actually just, um, we've been using their their, their staff and, and their, their infrastructure to just produce meals um, every day. And I, I think these, they just recently launched um, uh, EMP to Go Box, where they're um, sharing a recipe from Chef Daniel's um, childhood, um, which is a, a chicken and some sides. Um, in, in efforts to, you know, to bring some um, staff back, but also continue to support the community in need. 
Yeah, that's great. We actually got one of those boxes last week and we were able to cook it um, and show our audience on live how easy it is and delicious. So um, happy we're able to support. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, entrepreneurs in this time and um, people who are, um, you know, thinking about maybe changing their career or starting a business. Um, you know, you've been involved in, in uh, several businesses. Um, and, you know, I'm just wondering what advice you would give to people during this time that are, you know, kind of reevaluating who they are and what they're doing, but also kind of weighing um, the state of the world. What, what kind of advice do you have for those people who are thinking about maybe starting a, a business during this pandemic? just do it you know i think um you know it, it's 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 as simply as just being active um the world is not perfect um right now but at the same time it wasn't perfect before i think it just allowed us to really highlight the things to focus on ourselves at this time because it's you know it's pretty dormant you know we're seeing activity pick up again but there's a lot of opportunities to help to create at this point um you know, I think everybody's taking the time to reflect about themselves, their lives and their positions in the world. Um, so I would just implore people to, to you know, step out and, and do something that they've been earning to do for a very long time. Because this right now is, the, um, you know, it's an opportunity um, to just really dabble yourself in things that you would probably have not taken a risk um, as everything's kind of chaotic. But for me, it's, you know, it, it, it's you know, the, the thing is just to be happy and, and to continue to do the things that you love. And, you know, you know, as if they can take me for an example in the route that I've gone through, which is not really the traditional route um, that most chefs take is, you know, invest in yourself, continue to learn, continue to, to, to be happy. And I think most importantly, you're going to find a way. Um, I think most entrepreneurs, the struggle is, you know, how am I going to make money? Um, how can I support myself? But I think, the way, the moment you actually step forward towards being happy and um, doing the things that you want to be doing, it's no longer work, and um, you'll you'll find a way. It's, it's strange the way it works because um, you it always comes around, and and you know things are always gonna um, work out, you know. For, and if it doesn't, you know, it's it's a lesson, and it's a lesson towards you know having, you know, taking these lessons to move forward and and you know perfecting your craft, whatever it is that you're, you know, stepping into. Yeah, that's great. I totally agree. Essex Market is a food lover's paradise with over 30 unique vendors selling everything from one-of-a-kind spices to daily grocery staples and even scratch-made prepared foods. At HRN, we believe that buying from local purveyors is one of the best ways to support an equitable food system. That's why this holiday season we'll be shopping from the vendors at Essex Market. Not only are their offerings fresh and delicious, they're also affordable and sold by a community of passionate small business owners. This connection is what has made Essex Market a stalwart in New York City's food landscape for the last 80 years. Now located in a brand new building, Essex Market continues to be one of the most unique food experiences in New York. At Essex Market, you'll find Lower East Side locals shopping for plantains and avocados alongside visitors browsing freshly baked bread and locally produced cheeses. If this gets you hungry, order from one of the market's many prepared food vendors serving up dishes from Peru, Thailand, Morocco, and beyond. 
Learn more and shop online for local same and next day delivery at EssexMarket.nyc. So this podcast is about, you know, uh, spotlighting people in our community, um, their culture, their background, um, sort of, you know, their path through, um, you know, their careers, uh, kind of going back to the kitchen. Um, I'd love to hear, like, what are some of your favorite dishes that really comfort you that you have developed recipes for over the years and fed people? Um, you know, what what are some of your favorite dishes to cook and also to eat? Well, that's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. I have many, but you know, one thing that I always constantly find myself um, making is is lots of soups um, for sure. Um, but just simple, simple country style food. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I grew up with a lot of diverse palates. So there's things like pies are really um, good for me. I, I love pies. Um, you know, I've just been, you know, obsessed with, um, this, uh, spinach pie that I grew up with. And it's from like, um, it's, it's from, I pick it up from like a local Albanian store and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like phyllo stuff with like cheese and, and spinach and, it, you know, it takes a lot of time to make it. There's, you know, there's a lot of art in it. Um, I certainly try making it myself, but you know, it's easier to buy. But in terms of cooking, simple things of just like you know, um, steamed fish with you know, uh, with just aromatics of like you know, scallions, cilantro, soy. Um, those things really you know feed the soul. Um, chicken. Um, you know, I love like doing a roast chicken. You know, marinated in like um, in like shiokoji. Um, and, and, you know, it's all those little simple things that you, I revisit, um, and that, you know, doesn't take much, but it takes a lot of love. And I think those things really, really, um, hits, hits the spot. Um, you know, anything with potatoes in there and cheese, it's like, you know, that it, it works for me as well. So for anyone listening that doesn't know, you said that you like to make a chicken marinated in shiokoji. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, it's um, it's just basically koji is inoculated um, fermented rice uh, that we, you know, once you ferment it, it has a lot more umaminess to it. It's also sort of like miso, but done with rice. Um, and we, you know, I marinate it with chicken and, you know, you do it overnight. You know, there's aromatics that I put in there, like with bay leaves, peppercorns, garlic, lemongrass, uh, ginger. And, you know, after that, I, I take the rub off and, you know, I simply just put it on the grill. Like I was doing a lot of grilling this summer. Um, because it was just easy, you know, um, and and it's from there. It's like it's you know we wrap up potatoes and just throw them on the coals or charcoals, and you know we had we have like baked potato with some some roasted grilled chicken. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm very easy, but like you know, it, I think taking the time to make the marinades and preparing it, um, you know, having all the that in hand, um, it, you know, typically makes it a little bit easier. Um, so you know as always in the kitchen, you know, having your mise en place and, and having your prep work done, it makes, you know, cooking uh, very easy and enjoyable. Yeah, totally. Um, so I guess kind of along those same lines, I'd love to know, like, what are some ingredients or um, sauces or, um, you know, kind of traditional uh, Chinese, you know, dishes that you like to make, but what are some ingredients that you always have in your kitchen, um, you know, based on your Chinese American background? Oh, for sure. I have, um, a lot of chilies, um, Mm -hmm. you know, peppercorns, white, um, green, um, black, 
lemongrass for sure. Um, I like using galangal, which is like um, Thai ginger. It's yeah. a much more fragrant um, ginger than just the typical ginger that we would receive in like uh, a supermarket. Uh, Kefir lime leaves are like um, some of my favorite. Um, they're typically hard to get. And at the same time, like, you know, they, they actually, they don't hold up um, too long. So you gotta use it when, when you can. Uh, fermented bean curd. Um, I, I, I have like all different kinds that we, we make it in house. Um, some that's like red yeasted. Um, but you know, the Asian pantry is a lot of preserved and fermented goods that really um, develop um, the flavors of Chinese food. So, you know, these things are also like, they take a lot, a lot of time to make, but you know, so, you know, you buy them in, in um, regular grocery stores, but luckily I have a friend who owns like a purveyor that, you know, it's a sort of like one-stop shop and, you know, he keeps me, um, keeps my pantry full all the time. Lucky you. Um, cool. So, um, one other question that I often like to ask my guest is, you know, what does being a Chinese American mean to you? That's a good question. Um, I think I've had the opportunity to actually revisit that um, a lot during COVID. Um, one of the projects that we worked on at Rethink was um, in Chinatown in Lower East Side. You know, in the in the height of the pandemic, you know, there was one day I actually like was coming from the Bronx, and you know, Chinatown never in New York City never closes, right? Um, yeah. And I was trying to get a coffee, and I just like realized everything had shuttered. Um, there was everything in Chinatown was closed. And just to give you perspective, we don't even close on Chinese New Year. And if we right. do, like, we're still open, like, till half day. And that was a, um, you know, a rude awakening for me, at least in terms of what was going on. And, you know, for those that don't know, also, like, Chinatown consists of, like, 20,000 seniors. There are no marquee supermarkets. Everything's super local, mom and pop shop. And where I started to ask the question was, like, you know, what's going to happen with all the people that have no food source? Um, so I had to reconnect, I reconnect, reconnected with some friends, um, because, you know, growing up in Chinatown and growing up as an Asian American in Chinatown, it, it also, it's, it's weird because, you know, to, to the, those that are, you know, um, that came before us, they still see us as like, you know, the typical saying is like, oh, they're juxing, which is like, you know, you're American born Chinese or they're, they're young and they're new, but not from the motherland. And there's there's definitely a disconnect um, there, but also growing up as Asian American, like as American, like there was also a disconnect to Western culture as not maybe being fully accepted. So, you know, for me growing up, it's like, you know, we're kind of pushed in the middle. Um, but this opportunity um, during COVID allowed me to really connect with a lot of the seniors because um, the pilot program that we um, we started there, which, you know, is still going on, is no longer a pilot, but we, we were giving like five to 10,000 meals a day. Um, so just seniors down there. So it really allowed me to actually reconnect with a lot of seniors in a different way, um, but also gain, gain the trust um, that, you know, that, you know, just because we're young, um, you know, they may think that we're, we're um, very naive, but at the same time, I think, you know, it showed that we were able to step up and take care of our communities. And, and I think, you know, it made me closer. It made me, you know, start questioning, you know, um, as an Asian American in, you know, being, in, in, in my generation, like, what is my role? Um, I think, you know, we've been taught to chase the American dream, you know, um, make sure that we have a secure job because, you know, I, our ancestors, you know, just made a lot of way, you know, you know, they migrated over from, from, from overseas, you know, you know, had a really, really tough, um, 
you know, life in terms of, you know, hardship, you know, opening restaurants, working, just trying to make ends meet so that we can support a family, um, you know, with, you know, the ongoing language barrier and just being in a foreign land. So, you know, for me, you know, growing up, it's been taught that, you know, we should, you know, not take those sacrifices for granted. But ironically, it actually took us away from the culture a little bit um, because we're so focused on the American dream. Like, obviously, we still um, preserve some parts of tradition, but there was a disconnect because it felt like, you know, we're running towards something, but also running away from from ourselves. Um, So I think this time just really allowed me to um, reflect and share stories with, um, you know, my friends as to what it means to be Asian American and, you know, what voice do we hold here in America and how should we, you know, how should we be, um, how, how can we be proud in terms of representing our culture, but at the same time understanding that we are also part of American culture. Um, so I think in the next years to come, we're going to see a slew of, you know, Asian American restaurants, chefs coming out and hopefully representing, um, you know, their perspective as to what being Asian American means. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly still figuring that out for myself, but I think I'm one step closer to where I was six months ago. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, and you also, you're a dad. You have a son. Um, how old is Hudson now? Hudson is two and a half. Um, he, you know, he, he was away for six months um, during during the pandemic with his mom. That must have been hard. Yeah, you know, for me, it, it was hard. But at the same time, I, you know, I was lucky because, um, you know, his mom and I we co-parent, and you know, she took really good care of him. And I think, and the day, what made it easier for me was that. You know, I asked myself, you know, as a parent, what is it that I ultimately want for my child? And it's just for him to be happy. So the fact that he was, you know, out in Connecticut and in Nantucket, just like swimming and being with his cousins every day and just like being happy. Like, ultimately, I, I felt like I felt I felt confident that, you know, what I, what the choices that I made and what we made together um, was the right one. Sounds like it. Um, so what are some of his favorite things to eat? Is he a uh, he, big eater? He loves to eat. Um, it's funny because, you know, you know, I think secretly I was trying to feed him all these like exotic things as he was a child. Um, but one thing he doesn't actually like to eat is curries, which is weird. But I think um, I kind of figured out that he likes to eat things, um, you know, one at a time. So he doesn't like to mix his, his vegetables. So like he loves broccoli, um, you know, for so as a, for a parent, like it's amazing. Um, I think broccoli is like his favorite food. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and now, you know, and, and then starting to grow into, like, pizza and chicken fingers, which, you know, we try not to do too much. But right. he, lo- he loves fruits. Um, blueberries was, was, like, his his thing, you know. Um, I think Gary V, who also is, you know, self-declared blueberry crusher, I think he has some competition. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, so I guess the last question um you know, that I have for you is, uh, what's next? I mean, what are you, are you focusing mostly these days on Rethink NYC and, um, that your nonprofit or, you know, what are you thinking of? I know we're obviously in, in weird times and, um, no one knows what the future holds, but I'm wondering what you have planned. Yeah. So for me, in, in terms of catering, um, you know, I think we're going to be doing a lot more using that arm of our business to focus on doing more communal events. Um, so, you know, catering for charities, catering for special events, but 
just really think about um, choosing the types of events that we're, we're catering. Um, you know, we used to go from to like we used to have about 400 to 500 events a year. Um, and this, you know, I think this year we're already making the transition to maybe just curating, you know, 20 to 30 events that were really meaningful. Um, in terms of my involvement with Rethink, I actually stepped down um, from my position three weeks ago. Oh, okay. um, and I'm actually focusing on working on a supply chain correction model um, on a larger scale. Um, I really want to really, I really want to jump in there to, to, you know, solve, hopefully can come up with solutions that, that can not ch- change, um, you know, the way our supply chain works, because I, I, I think ultimately in the, in the models that we work in, in terms of America, like we're meant to be profitable. We're meant to, you know, you know, from our capitalistic ways, uh, you know, find the most, um, find the economies of scales in which we can um, build the most dollars. Um, so it's coming up with a model that we can, you know, maybe divert farm excess um, in, into into scale. How do we, you know, one cover the nominal cost of you know farmers producing food, not wasting, and really using that along with you know our community ties to see how we can actually gain access um, to to these communities. Um, because typically, what we've seen from from a lot of the stuff that we've dealt with at Rethink and my experience was that a lot of the food is being thrown away and hunger, or at least the issues of hunger, um, is not due to the shortage of food, but due to the accessibility of food. Um, so how can we come up with unique models or business models that actually are supply chain correction models? You know, so for instance, you know, not even to be vague, how can we take, you know, 40,000 pounds from the farm of eggplant, you know, if they were growing eggplants and you know there was a high supply but not enough demand of eggplant, how can we take that and you know bring it to a facility to make baba ganoush or make uh, eggplant inspired, um, you know, um, dishes that we can eventually serve to the community? Or how can we take that farm excess and bring it and create local CSA to areas where you know, um, you know, markets or resource, you know, access to fresh fruit and vegetables. Are, are not as as um, prominent. That's great and super important work. I also um, care a lot about farms and sustainability. And that was always one of the things that was fascinating to me in the summers um, on Long Island at the two CSAs that I belong to, um, where we actually get to go out into the fields and harvest our own vegetables each week is, you know, you wait all year for tomato season, right? You know, living in the Northeast, it's like, you know, grocery store tomatoes are terrible. Um, I personally refuse to purchase the tomato um, unless it's in season and, you know, from a local farmer, um, just because of how much better it tastes. And, you know, walking the fields in August and September, they're often just tomatoes, like rotting on the ground. And, um, you know, friends and I would, you know, kind of get together and kind of do this like kind of small scale gleaning club where it's like, okay, so um, like, let's go get those tomatoes that have just, just fallen, you know, and they're fine. They might be bruised, but we can make sauce, you know, and, and, you know, even just like hand that out to friends and family, um, you know, but there's, you know, I often too would see like a farmer that, you know, for them, it's like, okay, that spinach row is, um, you know, it, it's ready to be plowed and, you know, replanted. But in reality, there's a ton of spinach. Um, I have 
like memories of forcing my three kids to pick spinach or green beans, you know, on like nights in, you know, as it's getting dark in the fields in the summer and telling them like, you're going to appreciate this on Thanksgiving. I'm going to be able to pull out these green beans that I, you know, vacuum sealed. Um, but you know, it's, it's really important work and, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a problem, you know, and it's something that farmers need help with. So organizations like, um, you know, what you're talking about and what you're working on are, are so important. Um, so I'm excited to follow along and see how um, that works out for you. Thank you. I'm excited too. I think there's a lot of um, unique models that are floating out there. And, you know, there's people that have, you know, come from different diverse backgrounds, not necessarily being in the food industry, but, you know, they may be accountants, they may be, um, you know, consultants that are now looking at our, our food supply chain. And I think because we've all at some point during COVID become victims of um, scarcity mm-hmm. um, due to just, you know, the over, um, over the overabundance of demand uh, that people are just looking at these issues and saying like, you know, they're typically just not issues. It's just things that we've neglected for a long time. So we just need to revisit it. And I think, you know, we're in good hands, you know, with the amount of talent that's out there. I think if we really focus hard um, and really have a true genuine um, place in the heart to, and for the agenda, which is, you know, how do we just create a more equitable future so that, you know, wherever is to come that, you know, we're not going through this, you know, feeding people, um, should just be something that we do and, and, and it, it shouldn't be a question whether somebody has food or not. Um, and I think there's enough out there to share and I'm super excited to, you know, just work with my team and, and, you know, continue to, to drive that change and inspire that change. And hopefully, you know, we can be a, a bigger part of the solution. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Winston. It was great catching up. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak. Thank you, Julie. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the food and discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and follow Winston as well. If you have a food story to tell, or you want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur about a specific country or region and its cuisine, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.